You're listening to Radio Kurdistan, podcasting from the foot of Mount Sinjar, northern Iraq. My name is Sharvan, and I've been here as a guest of the Yazidi people for uh, about four weeks now. In this episode, I am a guest on a new podcast called Where Many Worlds Fit. This podcast is a unique collaboration between two organizations, the Emergency Committee on Rojava and the Sexta Grietas del Norte, which is a support group for the Zapatista Revolution. So this podcast, in many ways, is combining the support activists of the Rojava Revolution and the Zapatista Revolution. My host is Alex, and here's our conversation. We're here with Charvan. Charvan is a documentary uh, uh, filmmaker. Um, you're currently situated just north of, of Sinjar, you said? Yes, um, that's right. So just north of Mount Sinjar. This whole region is still called Sinjar, but uh, yeah, the, uh, the actual mountain is uh, to the north of it. Right. And so do you, I'll give you an opportunity here to just kind of introduce yourself and talk about a little bit about what you do in your own words. I'm a filmmaker from New York, and uh, I am here to uh, chronicle a revolution in the making uh, of the Yazidi people. And uh, I'm here at the invitation of the, uh, uh, what's uh, known as the Autonomous Administration of Sinjar, which is the, uh, uh, a revolutionary formation for uh, democratic assemblies within the towns at the foot and on, uh, and on uh, Mount Sinjar. Um, and so um, what happened was uh, following the uh, ISIS uh, uh, genocide, the uh, townspeople organized themselves uh, to fight back and drive ISIS out. And they succeeded in doing that. Uh, and at the same time, they um, they created their own bottom-up democratic revolution, and they uh, 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 created a defense forces, uh, heavily armed defense forces of the townspeople to uh, prevent ISIS or any other terrorists from coming back to uh, threaten the Yazidi people. Gotcha. And so this, uh, these defense forces, that's the, the YPS, the Yepesha, is that right? Ah, uh, yes. Out here, um, it's uh, uh, Yebesha YBS, uh, and the mm. women's uh, YJS, and then uh, the uh, revolution's police force, also called Asai. Right. And so it sounds like <clears throat> these things are very kind of like part and parcel, kind of like directly related to the things that are going on in the Syrian side of Kurdistan in Rojava. Um, and so I'm much more familiar with that movement, which I think is like a little bit further along in terms of like, you know, maturing and they have kind of their own self-governance structure and things like that. But I'm, I'm less aware of what's going on with the Yazidis. I know about the genocide for that. So that the genocide that we're referring to um, took place in 2014. Is that right? Ah, uh, yes. I should actually give the background too. the uh, Yazidi people are... Um they are uh, very unique in, on the entire planet uh, because they consider themselves the oldest culture in the, uh, in the world. Uh, and uh, they are not uh, Muslim, Christian, Jewish. Uh, they are, um, uh, uh, Yazidi also means the Yazidi belief system. Um, and uh, so very complicated uh, uh, system of beliefs, but um, they are hated by, uh, uh, by uh, 
Muslim jihadists uh, considered lower than animals. And uh, so when uh, ISIS came here, they didn't come here to, to rule uh, this area. They came here because they, it was basically a campaign of extermination. So wherever they went, right. they killed a lot of people. They enslaved uh, many uh, children and uh, women um, and sold them. And uh, many of these people are still um, uh, missing and they are still slaves someplace else. Uh, and uh, there are efforts to uh, find out where they are and to free these people. Um, and, uh, right. and many of them sought refuge in uh, Mount Sinjar, and then many of them escaped into uh, Rojava. Um, and uh, when uh, Rojava opened up kind of a humanitarian corridor to allow these refugees to, uh, to uh, come into Rojava, where um, basically there were very little resources, uh, so the people of Rojava basically uh, allowed uh, Yazidis into their homes and uh, gave them food and, and uh, shelter and so forth. Uh, but also, uh, fighters from Rojava, uh, YPG, uh, were starting to come over to help to defend Mount Sinjar, where the Yazidis were, uh, were uh, uh, there already trying to defend themselves. And uh, so... Right. They kind of came in and provided, like, you know, a backup support and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Well, they were, they were very well remembered. I mean, we're talking about a few dozen... Uh, Fighters and uh, the Yazidis here uh, remember very well that um, uh, some people from Rojava started to defend uh, or helped to defend uh, the mountain, and then uh, eventually many uh, uh, people from Rojava, many fighters came to uh, back up the uh, uh, the uh, defenses on Mount Sinjar. And eventually, they took back the towns and uh, and uh, allowed the Yazidis to reclaim their uh, district uh, after much, very much uh, fierce fighting. It should it should be noted too that uh, the job of defending Iraq is the Iraqi army, uh, and uh, also there is a, a semi-autonomous region, the Kurdistan Regional Government. And, yeah. and both these forces, uh, when ISIS started to come in, they withdrew from this area literally without firing even one single bullet to, uh, to defend uh, the Yazidis. Uh, and so they essentially abandoned this uh, territory and uh, they fell back uh, against ISIS. So far, they almost gave up the entire country to ISIS. Right. And so there's a lot of things going on here. There's like a lot to unpack and there's a lot of history to kind of go through and stuff like that. But I think that there's like the two kernels that I want to zero in on here is like the, the kind of like remnants and recovery from this genocide, which is like horrendously, you know, like this is this is a thing that has not really been covered in Western media, at least Western mainstream media. Um, except as like a feel good story of like our allies, the Kurds just kind of like went in there and, you know, uh, saved the day or whatever. And that's, I think, not untrue, but it's also, you know, just kind of like sanitizing and kind of whitewashing that story a little bit. Um, and so I think the, the kind of first and, the, and the, the, the second thing is like, you know, the, the kind of influence of, you know, what you say, the Oshalon movement um, and just kind of like the furtherance of that um, in Iraqi Kurdistan. And so the, the first thing that I want to ask is like, 
Um, the Yazidis, this is something that I'm personally a little confused about. It's like the, the Yazidis are ethnically Kurdish. Is, is that correct? Ah, this is a quite a big uh, can of yeah. words. Yeah, <laughs> that's what um, I figured. And so, um, uh, the best way to say it, uh, I, and uh, there's there's a history too. Okay, I'll tell you history. Uh, well, first of all, the Yazidi people live in Kurdistan, and uh, what uh, uh, the Kurdish revolution calls Kurdistan. Uh, so uh, the issue is, are Yazidis Kurds? And so the reason why this is sensitive. Is, for Yazidis, they have been growing up under what is called the Kurdistan Regional Government. And uh, that is something that is run by uh, some billionaire uh, family called Barzani. Uh, and this Kurdistan Regional Government is, um, is the very same uh, government which uh, withdrew their defenses in 2014 and uh, also uh, from the uh, Yazidis' point of view, disregards their uh, their rights, their democratic rights, and so uh, because of that, uh, when you go to Mosul, uh, Yazidis will say, "I'm going to Kurdistan if I'm going to Mosul," but uh, but actually, they do acknowledge that they are part of uh, Kur uh, Kurdistan, and so Yazidis don't call themselves Kurds because uh, there, there's probably other cultural and historical reasons, uh, but they also um, called, uh, uh, but the, the political reason is because they are uh, distinct from Kurdistan regional government. Uh, 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 and then, uh, but the truth of the matter is, they are more a part of the Kurdish revolution uh, of Oshalan than are the 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 people who run Kurdistan regional government, <laughs> so so in a sense they are more part of the Kurdish uh, movement than the Kur the people who are identified as Kurds in northern Iraq. I right. know that's very confusing. <laughs> yeah, but this whole this whole situation is like very very messy. And if people you know this is like one of the things that we really really need to own is like dig into all this nuance and context because like it's like. You know, you cannot sanitize the story of what's going on with these people because it's it's really important to get all of these like facts kind of like wrap your head around them. Oh um, yeah, and you, so you know yeah. what occurs to me talking about it too is that um, uh, like it, it, you can get confused when you want to have a holistic understanding of what's going on, but if you want a partial understanding, then you can take your pick. And uh, and then it becomes easy because you know people want. Uh, and I'll give you an example. The United States calls the uh, YBS and the YPG uh, U.S.-backed forces. If you look on, you know, on CNN, they're called the U.S.-backed forces. So um, yeah, uh, these folks fought an entire war on behalf of Iraq because. Uh, the Iraqi army fell back uh, from ISIS, and uh, ISIS, with a very small force, was able to run all the way down, hundreds of kilometers, to threaten Baghdad. And they had most of the territory of Iraq. And so um, the U.S. Uh, supported YPG and uh, YBS to, uh, with air support and forces on the ground. To uh, to rid Iraq of uh, ISIS, 
And so uh, from the U.S. point of view, they call them U.S.-backed forces. They don't want to get into it. Though, oh, well, this is actually an anarchist socialist revolution. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, and so they, they just want to keep, it, keep them in that conceptual box. Uh, and right. so Turkey and Ir- Iraq army, they also have conceptual boxes they want to, uh, you know, they want to use. But if you, you just stay in those boxes, you, you will always run into a, some contradiction, some, something that your analysis didn't, didn't uh, factor in. Right. Uh, this, is, this is how you wind up with like Hillary Clinton making a movie about the, the YPJ, and it's just like, this motherfucker, this is missing the goddamn point so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a sense, like women's movement can also be like one of those sort of boxes. The uh, genealogy right. movement of the Kurdish revolution uh, is a, a very deep idea. What they're saying is that the uh, class struggle uh, really begins with uh, the oppression of women, and that uh, historically, uh, anthropologically speaking, the uh, the uh, issue of class divisions and class oppression started with. Uh, the oppression of women at the same time as uh, the concept of the state arose in humanity. So that's, uh, that's what genealogy is. Uh, and so it is a class struggle combined with uh, a women's emancipation, women's liberation movement. Uh, from the West point of right. view, they want to uh, have uh, fo- photos in the fashion magazines of... Uh, of uh, YJS uh, uh, and uh, and show uh, you know there's battalions of women's fighters fighting ISIS. Uh, uh, some many of them are former uh, slaves of ISIS, and they are fighting back against the man. So so they want to um, they want to fit it into the paradigm of uh, Western feminism, which is more like competition with men in the workplace and which means uh, basically formal equality with men in uh in uh, the workplace uh in uh, family decisions and abortion rights and so forth um and so uh there's a lot of commonalities i think uh that that one works very well but it's still sanitized they want to sanitize it away from the fact that this women's movement is actually a liberation movement, which is connected to the broader liberation movement of the whole people. Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting that you bring that up because that's something <clears throat> that's something that <clears throat> sorry, pardon me, that we run into a lot. Just kind of uh, you know trying to explain this movement to people in in the West and just kind of like you know breaking through with people about what the movement is about and like in particular adapting some of it for like a U.S. context for like what what would it look like to realize something like democratic confederalism here. Um, And a really important part of this is that it grows kind of like naturally and organically out of the the cultural soil that you have. And so this is the cultural soil that you have in Kurdistan, right? You do not have the same soil in the US. (laughs) That's that's just not obviously true, right? And so, like one of the one of the things that you have to like worry about is to translate, not transliterate, but to translate some of these cultural ideas about genealogy and what they mean. And I don't think that there's really like a an organized way of doing that just yet. But there are some pieces that it should like have to include. And one of those pieces is like so we have you know we have this idea of intersectionality, um, and I think that a lot of like especially a lot of American leftists. Um, 
will kind of go a little bit further and say that you can't be a class reductionist. Like there's so many other factors at play here. Um, there's racism and there's like racism against black people, which is different from racism against Native Americans. And there's like all kinds of stuff, right? Um, and I think that like you have to, there's, there's also different conceptions of gender. Like we have, um, you know, a, a different like social construction of gender here in the US context that's different from Kurdistan. And so like all of these things are at play. Um, while at the same time they've hit on like this this obvious like historical truth you know that the kind of conception of the nation state goes into the, the subjugation of women by men um which is like the original sin of humanity mm -hmm. well it, you know, i think that uh, you uh, you have it right on the right on the head that is actually great uh you're the first person i've actually talked to who uh has uh, had this perspective to say okay well um uh, because other people are like, oh, how can we support the Kurds? But uh, what you're saying is, oh, how can we do democratic federalism here? <laughs> Which is a great, a great uh, yeah. answer. I think that one, one thing I would say is that, um, that the challenge that you're talking about is the challenge of saying um, how much can this uh, revolution be applied to all of humanity? Certainly the followers of Oshalon believe that this is not a culturally specific thing that uh, that uh, the Oshawan Revolution can spread to all of humanity, including uh, uh, to solve uh, uh, so many contradictions and class problems in the United States. And uh, I think uh, um, one idea of it that I think is um, uh, very encouraging is that uh, Yazidis, as we were talking about, Yazidis are very different from Kurds in many aspects. They're very unique uh, people uh, on this planet. And so... Right. Uh, they, have, they have different religion. They have different like cultural history. They have all kinds of different things that are, you know, like you said, very unique. Like the Yazidis are a small people and they, they occupy like a small region, um, but they persisted for millennia. <laughs> like, you know, it's, I think you mentioned at the top that it's like, you know, th this is one of the oldest like cultures and religions in the world. Yeah. And uh, one other aspect of it, too, is that they do not... Uh, have any uh, goals of spreading their religion. In other words, you are not uh, really, there's really no a way for you to become like a Yazidi in terms of religion. So um, they are not interested in outsiders understanding them. And part of that is uh, that uh, I think prior to 2014, uh, they, they like to... Uh, now, now, they didn't really like outsiders. Uh, you know, they didn't like outside influence very much. Uh, and right. so uh, for them to embrace Oshalon Revolution, uh, especially for me, like genealogy, which uh, they all are totally into it, uh, genealogy. The women here are totally into uh, genealogy. Um, Amazing. It's really hard to hear. And, uh, yeah. And uh, uh, some of this is an age thing, you know, a lot, a lot of the older men are still getting with it, uh, just like all across the world, older men will be more, uh, uh, you know, uh, inculcated into patriarchy, and so it's going to be sl a slower process. But, um, but nevertheless, um, uh, so I think that really does speak to, uh, to uh, Oshalon Revolution. A lot, of part, uh, a lot of it is because of the uh, emphasis on ultra-democracy, uh, like the idea of pure democracy from the ground up uh, helps because whatever your culture, whatever your religion, uh, that tends to um, 
uh, you know, uh, that tends to allow that cultural expression to be absorbed into the system, into the, demo, right. uh, the revolutionary system of thought, you know. Yeah, and that's a really, that's a juicy idea, I think. The idea that, like, what democratic confederalism really achieves, um, um, one among many things that it achieves, is, like, this kind of sense of pluralism. Um, as, as the Zapatistas would say, this is, like, we're, we're creating a world where many worlds fit. That's actually that's the title of the show. Um, and so, like, yeah, that, that, that's a really, like, interesting way to look at it, is, like, you know, we're not insisting or imposing that you have to follow our religion or our culture. This doesn't have to be exactly the same thing that it means to us. Um, but these ideas can take root everywhere because there's something universal in this. And there's like certain things that are too important to carry just one name, but they exist everywhere. Um, that's a really, it's a really interesting idea. Is there a, a so what, uh, I am not really so familiar with Zapatista. Uh, and uh, so, um, Tell me and tell me about similarities that you see with the Zapatista revolution. Oh, this is a whole other can of worms. <laughs> um, so the basic, uh, the TLDR version of the Zapatistas, I guess, is like, um, you know, they were they were organizing before 1994, but that's when the revolution kicked off. That's when like they became very visible on the kind of the global scene. Um, and I think that they would say that when they when they began that revolution, it was an alter globalization thing. So it was like in response to. Um, the NAFTA agreement. So it was like the, the kind of like the North American free trade agreement between Canada, the US and Mexico. Um, and this was, you know, right around the same time as there was all these like cartel wars that were happening in Mexico. And it was just like a lot of, a lot of indigenous people in Mexico were being left behind. And so the Zapatistas were this group of like composed mostly of Mayans um, who were in Chiapas. And so they, 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 you know, seized back their territory. Um, and today, I, you know, there, there's like a lot of history that I don't myself feel competent to get into um, because I haven't studied it enough yet. But I know that today they're mostly concentrated within the Lacondon jungle. Um, and they have these municipal assemblies that are very similar to democratic confederalism. They would call it Zapatismo. Um, but this is kind of what I'm driving at. It's like they independently arrived at many of the same ideas. Um, so the Zapatistas have... They have like this whole consensus-based decision-making model where it's like 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 you were talking about. It's a bottom-up, directly democratic thing, where there are no leaders, or there there are like there are like cultural and community leaders, but there's no one whose job is to lead everybody. There's no one whose job is like a president, you know. Um, and I think that anytime they do elect like a like a you know political body or something, there's like strict term limits. Like they can only they can only be there for like a year or two. But again, that's not something I'm, I feel competent to get into. Um, what I do know uh, is that there's this like beautiful municipal assembly that they have that they call caracoles, um, which I think is from the Spanish word for uh, for shell. They're they're like really big fans of snails, and this is again a cultural thing. So it's like the Mayans, the way that they use language and the way that they use their different dialects has more to do with. I mean, what they what how it was explained to me was like they speak to uh, listen with hearts rather than to be heard with words. And so the idea is that, you know, you come to these caracoles and these are things that are happening all the time. There's not, there's not like a set contained time. It's just a thing that anybody can walk into at any time and that's how decisions are made. Um, it's very slow and very grinding, but it's with intentionality. It's, so it's like, we don't make fast decisions, but we make decisions that everybody can feel like they're on board with. Um, and because it's consensus based, it's like you're not subject to like major majoritarian rule. Um, if you're 
if you like violently disagree with whatever the kind of consensus view is, you have a way to get that. Like you have a way to achieve what it is that you want in harmony with what everybody else is doing. And so it's like, you know, there's like other parts of it that are kind of compatible with democratic confederalism where it's like the kind of natural conflict between everybody's, you know, wants and desires um, is part of the system. It's like baked into it. And I, I love that. I love that whole idea. Well, that, that's just fascinating that uh, yeah. there's so much similarity. This Caracola's idea definitely sounds a lot like uh, how uh, uh, autonomous administration works. Uh, and uh, they also don't have uh, 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 many leadership roles, leadership positions. Uh, a, a lot of it is whoever can, uh, can sway with their, uh, you know, with their opinions and making sense to everybody else. Uh, those people tend to have more of an influence in what's going on. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's it. Which in front, from an outsider's point of view, it's often very difficult to figure out. Like, you know, like, take, yeah. for instance, if I uh, walk into uh, 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 one of these uh, uh, assembly buildings and I see somebody cleaning the toilet, uh, I, you know, I shouldn't assume that that person is the janitor. There is no janitor. So that person could be like the leader of this whole thing, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, because there's no positions exactly. So it's just going to have to wait and wait till the community meeting and find out what everybody's role is. And that's the best way to do it. Right. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really cool example because it's like that, that gets at a lot of things. There's like the class like strata of like, you know, a janitor is like low on the totem pole or whatever. That's a, that's a problematic reference. Like a, a janitor is like a person who's like very low in the social hierarchy. Um, but mm -hmm. like, there's no roles here. There's no like assigned seats. Um, there's no like you you don't you don't show up and be put in your place. Like if you have if you have something to say, you say it, and like that could come from anybody. And that that is just something that's really revolutionary and beautiful about that idea. Um, again, this is like something that the Zapatistas would say. It's like a revolution from below. They have this whole power analysis about like you want to come from below and to the left um, rather than above. Um, so like you. Uh, I think one of their one of their seven uh, principles is like propose, don't impose. Like you you propose what you want to do, you don't impose it on other people. And so like we mm. we decide things by you know consensus in that way. Ah, how interesting! How interesting. Well, it, yeah. It, but you know when I look at that, I feel that um, in a sense that uh, 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 we as American activists also. Uh, you know, don't look at this in a holistic way and, and uh, uh, may even look at it in a narrow way to project our own uh, ideas of how things should uh, happen and think that that's what's occurring, uh, you know, with the Zapatistas, with the Yazidis. Um, and then to say, oh, it's related to, say, like the Occupy movement or BLM or uh, and how those uh, those n uh, no leadership structures work, um, but I'm yeah. I'm a little bit uh, concerned about that. Uh, so uh, I feel that um, when 
you're in an America uh, when you're in America and and uh, you're in some type of American leftist formation, uh, and then people start talking about, oh, we don't have any leaders, and uh, let's have a stack for speakers, and we're going to try to make our decisions by consensus and so forth. That, uh, from my point of view, it always turns into a highly individualistic thing where people don't uh, come to an agreement on anything. They, they're, they're not ready to give up their positions. Uh, and then there's always some type of backroom, uh, you know, uh, cadre that's making all the decisions. Say, like in Occupy Wall Street, there's like there's this, some guy's apartment, and and people are secretly being invited to some some person's apartment where they're going to talk about it later into the night, so that they they right. can create this sort of like. Sparkus Youth League type of uh, influence in the next community meeting to to push <laughs> their party line, which they shouldn't even have uh, secret meetings at all. If you actually believe that the community assembly is actually going to get it done, and I've I've seen this many many times in different uh, yeah organizations. You, you can't you can't see how wide I'm smiling right now, but it's like, I, I think that probably most people listening to are having the same reaction. Cause I feel like this, this speaks to everybody. Everybody in the U S can like identify with some piece of this. Like we see it all over the place. Um, and I think like, that's, that's a really interesting idea too. And I think like, that's why we have to take it really seriously when people say that, you know, the revolution or whatever it is, um, needs to be led by like people of color and it needs to be led by like the, the kind of marginalized and like most oppressed people in our society. Um, and I think that like, there's a, there's a practical reason for that, which is that a lot of these places, like a lot of these cultures, you know, a lot of indigenous cultures, for example, have, uh, existing attitudes around this. They have existing attitudes around like these, these are cult, these are like traditions that go back millennia. Um, I think that as like, you know, as I grapple with what it means to be white and like what my whiteness means or whatever, um, because I have to, because I live in the U S and we're all really into identity politics. <laughs> um, what, when I when I grapple with that, it's like a cultural thing. Um, and when you're in the ocean, you're going to swim. You know what I mean? And so like when you put yourself in a different ocean, you start to learn how to play by these different rules. And it's really hard to kind of have that. It, it's really hard to achieve something when you've never experienced it before. You know, I think that's like a natural thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so the practical reason that I'm getting at is like, especially listeners who would identify as white, like, if you haven't done this yet, I would highly recommend that you go and organize with like <laughs> lots of lots of spaces where like you know whiteness is not the majority. Uh huh. Yeah, uh, I, I I hear you. I I, I think that I, I have also uh, seen that as a, as a as a reaction as a very good reaction to uh, to um, uh, these problems that we're talking about. Uh, but, uh, but I think it, it also has its limitations. It's like you white people are going to limit your, limit your power or, or re repress yourselves or whatever because you, you're concerned about that uh, white supremacy or institutional white supremacy could, uh, could uh, have a dominating effect and silence other voices that you really want uh, in there, you want to hear. Uh, and so... Right. Um, but uh, I think that I'd, I'd like to see, see it coming out from more of the context that we 
we, we have constructed our personalities and the way we do things from the capitalist uh, model, which includes uh, advertising, which uh, centers the personality on the individual, the, uh, individualism, be who you want to be or whatever. Uh, and then yeah. uh, also from the structures, we've grown up in structures all our lives, uh, whether it's a school structure and then most people are being prepared for the corporation structure. Uh, and so when we get the chance to uh, go into a collective, um, there is uh, this aspect of like tearing down, like, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm really describing it very well, but, uh, but uh, the idea of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, like this lack of structure goes, uh, goes uh, really overboard to the extent that we're actually not accomplishing anything uh, because right. the idea is that we grow up with the idea of who's in authority. We understand that the CEO of the corporation is the head of the corporation so that when we get to organize our own structures, our own collectives, uh, we don't recognize anybody in authority because they don't have the label of CEO and uh, in a sense, it ends up that we're just maybe we, we just disrespect each other, that, or we don't allow the community, the collective authority, to arise. Um, and that, in a sense, I'm uh, I'm getting real philosophical, but I'm trying to I'm trying to abstract uh, many experiences in uh, like a activist leftist context, and to see if I can, you know, bring out some truths, especially based on my yeah. recent experiences here. Right. I, I, I really appreciate that. I, I, I think that like, you know, it's good, it's good to hear perspectives like this, especially, you know, from somebody who's kind of on the ground in a lot of these different contexts. Um, and so I'm curious uh, to kind of like apply what you're talking about to the Yazidis. Um, the Yazidis are, you know, obviously survivors of genocide. And so like, there's, there's a lot of um, things that they're battling in terms of like, you know, maintaining their culture, maintaining their, their society, like they're, they're, they're like basic structures of, of like socializing with each other. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about how you see, um, you know, things like this being applied in furtherance of preserving some of that culture. Does that, does that make sense as a oh, question? Yeah. I think that, uh, one thing is that, um, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of what our scientific, uh, paradigm would call, uh, psychological trauma here. Um, uh, people have been literally enslaved. Uh, they have been tortured. They've lost family members. They've, uh, there, there are a lot of gruesome stories here too. Of, oh my God, just uh, really, yeah, uh, like, really gruesome cruelty from ISIS. Right. Uh, and one, so, one of the, can I, can I interject really quick? So one of the things, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you when I heard you like speak the other day was because we did this interview with Chabad Abbas um, last fall, um, where she was talking about something that I had never really heard of before, which was like this kind of internal displacement, or I guess it's external displacement, actually. There's like children um, who are the product of some of these like sexual slavery situations, um, just just en masse, like a, like a systemic, like a systematic kind of thing, um, who wound up in Rojava, 
which is not a context that they're native to. It's not a context that they grew up in. It's not a context that they like went to by choice. Um, and these children like have no parents and like, it's, it's a really complicated situation because what do you do? Like what, you know, you can't really like your, your conceptions of what to do in a situation like this that come from like relative peace and calm just do not apply. Um, it's just not, it's not the situation that they're in. Um, and nobody's really talking about this. And so like, you know, the kind of like role that that plays in cultural genocide, as well as like the initial genocide, it's like, you know, like you said, the scientific worldview would put, would, would say that that's generational trauma. Um, there's maybe different ways to talk about that. And so like, yeah, I, I don't really have a point there. I just. Almost the uh, word trauma doesn't even go, uh, uh, describe that situation. Uh, the problem with uh, those kids is that, um, say under Yazidi culture, they, uh, they are, call, uh, they are, uh, considered, uh, Muslims. Um, uh, and then the mother is considered Yazidi. The Yazidi, uh, the, uh, the mother wants to reintegrate into her, um, into her society again after, uh, you know, this horrible thing that has happened to her. Uh, and because of, uh, how it worked, um, she is uh, brought back into the clan um, uh, and her children are not. And then the children become orphans. It's so, it's so uh, heartbreaking. It's, 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 uh, and uh, there is uh, very little answer to it because um, the uh, like Western explanations as to what the most choices are really don't apply. I mean, uh, the... Uh, uh, this uh, Yazidis are um, organized into uh, tribes and then organized into clans. And so uh, this clan identity, um, uh, you, you, you see this in a whole bunch of different contexts, including uh, uh, people from uh, Iroquois Confederacy uh, that, um, and uh, many different places around the world. Um, and so folks who have this clan identity, this is their identity. This is who they are. Um, and so one thing that is great about the, uh, uh, the uh, Kurdish revolution uh, brought to the Yazidis uh, is that it allows them to preserve their, you know, uh, you know, their, their social structures, their, their clan structures, which, uh, uh, which is incredibly important for people who have survived um, the, uh, the trauma that they have survived. I mean, this would make anyone crazy. I mean, this, this would, uh, if this would happened in, in a context of like Western society or whatever, the entire society would have been destroyed. I mean, it would literally been sort of like a, it would be like, you know, like the walking dead or something like that. Uh, it would be a, a dystopian right. world, uh, because of, uh, how much, uh, cruelty, how much trauma these people have experienced. Um, and uh, so the fact that they were able to strengthen uh, their, their clan structures and incorporate, uh, you know, a modern revolutionary uh, uh, paradigm that helps them deal with the threats that they face. Um, it's, it's like a miracle. It's a, like a, 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 a miracle of humanity. Um, and the, uh, those uh, kids are still um, 
something that we have to deal with, uh, you know, as well as everything else. This this is a revolution in uh, in uh, its uh, uh, revolution is always developing. It's it's always imperfect, and you're trying to figure out what to do. Um, and so, uh, and this revolution is most definitely not complete in any way. Uh, it's uh, in right. the process of becoming, and uh, so. Um, and uh, uh, it's uh, true that the way that it's organized, these kids are left out. Um, and uh, so, yeah. um, uh, I, I should uh, uh, talk to people more about that, about the, uh, the situation with those kids. Um, but um, I, I think there's yeah. like more more attention needs to be placed on it in general. It's like, yeah, I, I definitely you know could could do more research about it myself. Mm-hmm. And I, th I think that um, this issue of the, the, the trauma, uh, well, I think it, it, there's many things that in the Yazidi culture that make it, uh, make it easier in a sense. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not totally sure what I mean by that, but, but um, and they, they have really gone through a lot of bad shit that, uh, that uh, would be tearing right. down people and causing all types of different kind of psychological uh, states that you generally don't, uh, don't see around here. You know, it's kind of weird, but uh, it's not like they're not suffering. Like, take for instance, there is a lot of... Uh, uh, well, first of all, uh, I should say that um, I was prepared to help the revolution, not just as a filmmaker, but as uh, uh, to try to provide uh, some uh, uh, medical knowledge that I knew that they, they felt they had a need for. Uh, so I became right. a, a, an EMT in New York City, and I got a certification in uh, tactical casualty combat care. And uh, right now what we're doing is we're creating a new Shahid Haji Academy in the revolution, and we are training combat uh, medics um, with a lot of the knowledge that um, that I uh, I've uh, accumulated, so I can bring it here. Uh, and uh, so that's incredible. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It also brings me into the life of the Yazidi people. Uh, you know, people right. are like, oh yeah, I got a heart problem. Oh, can you take my blood pressure or whatever? And uh, you know, so. There's not a lot of doctors around here. Uh, and there's uh, something like less than, like the Iraqi state itself has 10 doctors for the entire district, three surgeons, five dentists for the entire district, 400,000 people, it's crazy. So, uh, you know, um, but what I've seen uh, from, uh, you know, knowing about the health of the Yazidis intimately is that uh, there's a lot of problems with sleep a lot uh, there's a lot of lack of sleep around here uh and there's a lot of kidney problems per and uh people uh often attribute that to the quality of the water um and there are um in terms of psychological there have uh, there are a few households around here where uh the uh the main uh breadwinner to so to speak uh, the, uh, the man in the household just sort of shuts down, cannot go to work anymore, and just, you know, 
just stays at home and somehow is not able to perform the same role that they had before. And this is something that is affecting many households around here. Um, yeah. And uh, it's just, you know, something that's undiagnosed. There's no people who are here who are experts at it who can help out that situation. There's no psychoanalysts around here. Um, and uh, so um, maybe it affects the women, uh, the men real bad. Uh, and for the women, I believe that their, uh, their women's center, their genealogy movement, and their collectives uh, help to um, to deal with their trauma. But there's plenty of stories related to trauma that the uh, the women are still facing from all the all the terrible uh, stuff that's happened to them and their children. You know. Yeah, and it's like you know they're going to be dealing with things like this for years, decades, centuries. You know, um, but at the same time, there's like there's a little bit of as you're describing this to me, there's like a little bit of euphoria there where, where you're like, it's incredible that they are able to find a way to maintain some of the social structures that they have always needed to thrive and survive. And like the sense of community that you get is just, why can't everything be that way? Like that's, that's, that's an idea I just keep coming back to. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, it's, it is wild. Well, it also fits into what Oshalon uh, Ocelon's philosophy is, uh, is about, too, is that, um, they, you know, instead of the, um, the Hobbesian idea from, uh, of the West, which is that, uh, oh, you know, without, without the state, life would be nasty, brutish, and short, and we'd yeah. all be nasty to each other, and it would all be horrible or whatever. Uh, uh, like the Ocelon philosophy is that actually the shit was pretty good uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, the human beings yeah. could uh, figured out how to live together in, in uh, harmony. But uh, once they started inventing this idea of the state and large formations, that's where right. the misery really came about. And so with the Yazidis, that makes a whole lot of sense to them. I mean, yes, there's a lot of things that's uh, wrong about what's going on, but uh, there's a lot of things that, uh, that are going right, for, uh, and that have been going right for the Yazidi people for many, many uh, uh, millennia. Uh, and uh, so, um, you know, it's, uh, it's awesome that, you know, they ended up allowed to continue that. Uh, but they are, are now are still under threat. Uh, it's not really clear whether the Yazidis are going to survive. Uh, uh, you know the the challenges, the military challenges that they're facing now uh, uh, for uh, for the next uh, couple of years. Um, and so uh, those same uh, protection forces that they organized to. Uh, protect themselves from ISIS. And by the way, ISIS is still a real thing. Uh, yeah, I, ISIS is still very much around. Um, it's still very much a huge, massive problem. Um, there was like a there was like a mass prison breakout in Rojava like a like a couple of months ago. Was that? Do I, am I remembering that right? Oh yeah, there, there was that prison break, and I think it was like last week that 
some commander in ISIS said, uh, put out this public call. Everybody has to resume operations because the Ukraine yeah. crisis is absorbing everybody's attention. So now is the time to strike. Most of the uh, striking is happening in Syria, in uh, Rojava, right. and in Iraq, actually. Uh, and uh, there, and most of it is in the form of murders. Uh, it's uh, not um, in the form of large strikes, large suicide bombs, and so forth. Uh, but there have been right. uh, uh, ISIS murders in uh, the refugee camps in Rojava uh, very recently, and uh, like a real uptake in the last three months. And then um, there are ISIS strikes all over Iraq. What's interesting, though, is that there's no ISIS uh, activity here in, in uh, Sinjar. Uh, you know, ISIS is completely, there's been not a single case of an ISIS murder or any type of ISIS terrorist strike in all of Sinjar. Uh, and so, in a sense, uh, this area is the safest from terrorism of all of Iraq. Um, and How, is it? Go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it just has a lot to do with um, uh, just you know the fact that uh, the revolution is here. The ISIS uh, that ISIS can't get a foothold because the uh, protection forces are here uh, looking over, out for the people. But actually, it's it's actually the uh, the assemblies. It's the uh, um, the fact that everybody has a stake in it. And the, like, see, this is something that for resistance forces, uh, the the democratic assemblies they create are actually what, uh, in military terms, would be considered a huge intelligence network that uh, that feeds intel to uh, to their militias so that they can defend the people. So any threats to the masses, to people. Um, uh, filter up to the revolutionary force very, very quickly. And so, uh, of, in terms of ISIS, this is the safest area in all of Iraq. You know, they're being struck in Baghdad, they're being struck uh, in the different hinterlands of Iraq, but not here. Um, but right, and so, uh, and so, uh, this is a this is a oh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, the biggest issue is that even though this is the safest from, from uh, the terrorists. That the Iraq army is here amassing uh, against uh, the people of uh, Sinjar uh, is allegedly because they are going to fight terrorism. This is ridiculous. Uh, the, like ISIS has been striking the Iraq army all over Iraq, but uh, the Iraq army doesn't respond. They are only coming here. To uh, uh, to get ready to for a big invasion of uh, uh, Sinjar, where where I am, uh, and they are saying they're doing it to fight terrorism. This is uh, this uh, stupidest thing. Uh, you yeah, can it's imagine. complete nonsense, right? Yeah, and it's like it plays right into the hands of like, I mean, many bad actors. There's like you know, there's Erdogan's regime, which kind of considers all Kurdish activity to be like Kurdish autonomous activity to be terroristic activity. Um, you know, there's the old thing about the PKK and how the PKK is a terrorist group, which is, you know, make of that what you will. But then there's like, that's, the, that is fundamentally different than what is the, what is the issue with Yazidis, like achieving their own self, you know, self-governance and autonomy in the face of incredible odds 
Um, yeah, it's it's just a nightmare of a of a situation. Yeah, and then you have this situation where the prime minister of Iraq, Kadhimi, uh, appointed a governor of Sinjar. Uh, I've, uh, I live in the region of Sinjar, but there's a town of Sinjar on the other side of the mountain here. It's the largest town gotcha. here. But uh, so he just decided, oh, uh, you know, uh, you know, screw the mayor of uh, Sinjar. We're going to appoint a mayor of Sinjar. So, so he appoints the governor of Nineveh, the, dis uh, the district that we're in, uh, and the, he's the governor of Nineveh, Nineveh, and now he's supposed to be the mayor of Sinjar. This was ridiculous. Uh, the whole yeah, country laughed at him because they're like, well, you didn't even ask one person who lived in Sinjar what they think of it, and you're going to appoint some guy the mayor. Uh, and so right. uh, that only lasted something like two days. Then he withdrew the appointment, and then he appoints the same guy, the governor of Nineveh, to be the governor of Sinjar. Now, first of all, I'm not totally sure if, if Sinjar ever previously had a governor, you know, because the guy's already yeah. the governor of this district. So uh, what he's saying is that we're appointing you the governor of, you know, this district of Sinjar. I didn't even, didn't even know you, you could do that. Um, and uh, again, without consulting anybody who lives in Sinjar. So, um, when you compare the way the Iraqi state looks at the people who live here and what their rights are, what the Yazidi people's rights are, and then you compare it with the revolution, that this is actually the most uh, dem democratic, ultra-democratic uh, uh, communities in all of Iraq. There, in, if you go outside this community, if you go to Mosul, Erbil, ba uh, Suleimania, Baghdad, you don't find like assembly community assemblies making decisions for the community or anything like that. Uh, you no. know, I don't know. Uh, there's different structures, but it, it's not like that. Uh, this is the only bottom-up democratic uh, uh, communities in all of Iraq. Right. And uh, so my, then the guy starts my... appointing the mayor, appointing the governor, like like it's like yeah. some type of royal <laughs> fiat, you know. It's like, get the fuck out of here, man. <laughs> like, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Yeah. Exactly. Um, my, right. My understanding is that life under the KRG in a lot of other parts of Iraqi Kurdistan, um, sorry, in, in a lot of other parts of Bashur is is like, it's kind of like neoliberalified. <laughs> it, it, like, like it compares unfavorably to life under, I don't know, you know, California governors or, or something like that. Um I, I don't know if that is a meaningful comparison to make, but it but it's it's very very different, like you're saying. Um, yeah, it's a very different phenomenon from like bottom up, like directly democratic governance. I think so. Well, the issue with uh, Barzani is that uh, uh, he has the ability to act a little bit like Saudi Arabia. You know, they they're just rich with oil money, and uh, right. so they can create more institutions and. Uh, be the provider of electricity, water, and so forth. Um, and so, uh, but uh, nevertheless, KRG is a, uh, you know, a, an electoral democracy, and there are several different uh, political parties. Uh, and so there is a party competition, uh, which is threatening uh, Barzani. So take, for instance, um, Barzani has been uh, doing meetings with uh, Turkish President Erdogan 
And he actually did a meeting two days before uh, uh, Turkey decided to start an invasion of northern Iraq. As of two weeks ago, we are in the middle of uh, an invasion of northern Iraq, military invasion with, uh, you know, serious, like, armor and, and uh, airstrikes and paratroopers and all this stuff. And so, um, uh, but Barzani, he has actually denied that uh, there is any collaboration with Turkey related to their invasion. Similarly, the Iraqi government, uh, uh, you know, clearly is cooperating with this Turkish invasion. Uh, but since they also have a parliament and different political parties who are really angry about that, they are also uh, denying, they are actually condemning the invasion. When actually it's clear that without the cooperation of the Iraqi military, um, Turkey wouldn't even have uh, the ability to do an invasion. So, so the country is yeah. being invaded, and yet they are sending the Iraqi army here to Sinjar <laughs> to attack the democratic institutions and to get the protection forces to disarm the protection forces of the town. Uh, and right. It's, and it's like, you guys don't have anything else to do. Uh, like, this, uh, like, Turkey is talking about taking a, a piece of uh, Iraq going in 60 kilometers past the border and just permanently settling there. And, uh, and uh, the Iraqi army uh, thinks that the problem is the Yazidis and their protection forces. It's amazing. Oh, of course. Yeah, we can't be having, you know, people making their own decisions. That would be nuts. Um, yeah, so I, I think that to kind of like, to kind of wind us down and close us out, I think that there's a couple of ideas I wonder if we can spend a little bit of time like drilling into. Um, one, and I don't want to, I don't want to make this prescriptive or whatever. It's just like things that you can't help but notice in a lot of different situations. Um, which is like, uh, the, one is the importance of like winning hearts and minds when it comes to like doing mutual aid and stuff like that in terms of building support with a community. Um, and then the other is the sense to which, or the, the degree to which that's a direct threat to top-down power. Um, that's a direct threat to states and that's a direct threat to fascists in particular. Um, I don't know. I wonder if you have any like general thoughts about that. Uh, let me see. Um, um, I think that the, uh, there, there is a huge threat um, and a lot of it has to do with just the strength of this uh, Kurdish revolution because um, the the uh, you know we've been talking about a lot of the social philosophy of uh, Oshalan, but right. uh, let's uh, pull focus for uh, for a minute. Uh, what are they really talking about? They're talking about the the Kurdish people, uh, which includes uh, in this formation the Yazidi people, uh, should unite and should be able to be themselves, have their identity, and share their identity across all of the region where they live. That region uh, they call Kurdistan. Now, what is Kurdistan? Well, Kurdistan essentially is a region which uh, it crosses over four countries. So we got uh, a chunk of Syria, a chunk of Turkey, uh, Iraq, and Iran. 
And uh, then there is a little bit of a diaspora into, uh, I forget, like India, Pakistan, something like that. So, yeah, there's Kurds everywhere. There's like Kurds in Germany. Um, there's Kurds <laughs> yeah. here, you know. But this is a huge threat because the post-war system of, uh, uh, of the world has to do with a map of the world with lines, uh, borders on it. But uh, the Kurdish revolution is turning that into a Venn diagram with overlapping uh, borders. Uh, the borders of Kurdistan is, are over and cross over the different borders. This is a radical idea. This is threatening to uh, the states or even the concept of the state in the world. And they yeah. also misinterpret that. They say, oh, Kurdish is a separatist revolution. What they want to do is they want to create a state called Kurdistan and uh, that this is, uh, they're going to take territory from all the other states. Uh, whereas um, actually uh, they believe in democratic federalism where uh, they believe that the Kurdish people can interact um, as a federation of democratic communities across these borders if you just allow them to do that and they will still respect the borders but they uh, say that they should be able to cross these borders uh, because they're all Kurdish. Uh, and, so, um, and so they want to stamp this out. Turkey wants to stamp out the entire Kurdish revolution uh, and uh, the, the Iraq uh, uh, state, uh, well, the, the, Kur uh, the Kurdish uh, regional government, they also want to stamp this out. Uh, and uh, of course, Iran, Syria, Russia, uh, they, uh, they, they see this as a huge problem, which mostly comes from a misunderstanding. They just think that Democrat confederalism is some bullshit thing that, uh, that, uh, right. you know, but what they really want, they don't understand anything except the idea of that this is a separatist movement for a state. They don't even understand that this movement is anti-state, you know? Right. And we shouldn't leave it merely implied that this is a willful misunderstanding. Like this information is all out in the open. They could easily like read Oshelon or whatever and like try to try to understand better. But they have a vested interest in painting these people as like the villains. Um, just, you know, just there's not not to not to draw an equivalence because it's not equivalent. But there's like you, you can see a version of the same phenomenon in the way that like, you know, fascists in the U.S. like the like the, the Oath Keepers or like the, the Three Percenters or whatever um, have propaganda against mutual aid, like the very idea of mutual aid. Um, they, they, they describe it as like a shadow government or whatever. And it's like, really? no, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. About this. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's a pretty fascinating thing to study, but it's like, <clears throat> you know, perversely fascinating, but it's like, you know, they're, they're willfully misunderstanding the idea that mutual aid is all about where it's like, you know, building dual power and like directly challenging the authority of the state by just doing shit yourself. Um, and it's not a shadow government. It's like people making their own goddamn decisions. Um, but they, you know. But you know what's <laughs> that, interesting about that is I think that um, the the ultra right wingers, uh, like white supremacy groups, they kind of they kind of had that idea like decades ago. Yeah. And they were they were doing like barter economy in their you know white supremacist or or uh, right or right wing. Uh, Community. Little cities, enclaves. They yeah. were like anti-money for a while, weren't they?
I th- yeah, I th- that that rings a bell. I think that there's definitely I think some you know like some some white power slash like neo Nazi movements you know across the Midwest that were doing stuff like that. Um, but it's probably also worth mentioning that you can you can find like Salafi jihadists who do the same thing. They talk about like having to win hearts and minds, um, and that's like how they gain regional influence. Um, this is like a tactic that's used by revolutionaries throughout the world and across time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would think that uh, in terms of the revolutionary potential, that um, uh, what what I think uh, comes out a lot is that. Uh, Folks also love to talk to me and uh, tell me about how they are opposed to capitalism. They they love to t- uh, to talk to me and rail against capitalism. Sometimes they think that I'm the representative of capitalism. You know, uh, <laughs> com- coming to uh, the Yazidi people as the ambassador of capitalism. Uh, so this right, is their one and only chance to go and uh, scream at somebody about capitalism. And then they find out that I'm also <laughs> ready to also scream about capitalism. And then we scream about capitalism together. But um, they're... It's like, pretty- we agree with each other! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're like, oh, damn, you know, I don't get to so yell about capitalism because this guy is anti-capitalist. So, uh, but right. the issue is that they uh, critique capitalism mostly because the, they believe that um, our value system comes from what we have, uh, the possessions that we have, and the money that we can uh, get with those possessions. In other words, the meaning of our lives comes from the stuff that we have. And uh, this is, is, I think, absolutely true. Because um, when you look at how humanity has existed uh, before and outside of capitalism, uh, there are symbolic systems where, uh, which become really important to people, uh, to their lives. The symbols of a tribe, the symbols of uh, you know, value in a place. Um, become really important uh, and that is replaced in our society as the symbols of consu- the consumer you know um, and yeah so you know the symbols of religion became something where you know Christianity monopolized the symbols of life uh, and said right. oh well you can't have these symbols unless you pay us for the church and everything uh, and uh, make the clergy rich and create this huge clerical class. Uh, and, and we're going to also support you know, slavery, imperialism, do this whole, the same system. But, uh, but this idea of the life of symbols uh, is, you know, is, you know, is all throughout humanity. It's also true under capitalism, but they really don't, uh, uh, you know, under a consumerist idea, they think, oh, you know, all these religious symbols, that's all bullshit. Uh, But the symbols that we acknowledge are the symbols of what you own, you know. Uh, Yeah. So that's a huge part of, like, capitalist system. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at capitalist system as, you know, we talk about it as an economic system, but it's also... A language system is a way of talking about injustice and uh, it's a, a system of giving meaning to life the the meaning of life uh, the uh, meaning of love 
is translated into things that you can buy and encoded through uh, advertising to connect those uh, the symbolic needs of humanity to particular products that you can buy to fulfill those uh, those needs uh, and uh, so yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, that's, a, that's, that's going to be something I think that I'm going to be kind of chewing on and dissecting for a couple days now. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that like, there's also something to be said for the idea that like people are not monoliths and that includes some of these, some of the, some of these like institutions that we identify as problems or that have had a really problematic history. Um, like the Catholic church, for example, doesn't it doesn't play the same role everywhere that it crops up like there are there are parts of um central and south america where like you have liberation theology and like liberation theology has been like a really important part of certain leftist movements like the zapatistas um and so it's like i i, I think that owning that to for lack of a better word like kind of embracing the idea of that and the nuance of it and just like really digging into it um that's like a gift like that, that's, that's something that like the capitalist hegemon can't take away from you, um, is complexity. <laughs> um, and I, I think that like, I don't know, that feels like it's relevant to this discussion. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. And well, uh, speaking of Christianity specifically, I mean, you, you see Christianity is a huge aspect of the entire, uh, colonial era about 500 years it's hard to imagine that it could have been accomplished without christianity giving an imprimatur to people to do things which just the regular uh human being just would find just totally repugnant like uh, say uh you know, chattel slavery is a completely right. repugnant, evil uh, action, and Christianity helps to uh, give a sanction to it. Um, and so, uh, and then uh, Christianity is usually critiqued as a mental slavery uh, used to, uh, you know, to uh, you know get the subservience of. Uh, colonized peoples of course the entire colonial system would not work if you couldn't get colonized peoples to consent to the system uh for most of the system it just i mean if, if they're going to fight you all the way and it's not going to work so uh, so they use christianity as a way of uh getting the consent of uh colonized people to the system I think there was, uh, that was a mistake. That was a tactical mistake. Because when you look at the, uh, the story of Jesus itself, and I, uh, I believe that um, Jesus was a revolutionary uh, leader of a small cult in Jerusalem uh, that was going against the imperialism of the, of the Roman Empire, which was supported by the clerical class, the Jewish... Um, you know the 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 Jewish right. uh, high priests called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who were supporting the Roman system, uh, you know, very very directly, very uh, to help to enslave uh, the the Jews under the the Roman uh, colonial system, and Jesus stood against that, and so uh, Christianity has been mangled and rewritten like several times in its history, but. Uh, I think that uh, that spirit 
that revolutionary spirit is still there. And uh, my proof of that is the fact that uh, throughout the period of colonialism, there have been hundreds, thousands of revolts all over the world. If you count them up, most of those revolts are Christian revolts. And, uh, Mike Trump. Yeah, most of them have a lot to do with some guy uh, in Jamaica or the Philippines or Mexico starts calling himself Jesus and he starts to lead people um, in, uh, who are Christian against the colonial powers. Uh, and, so, um, and so there's something there. And uh, so then you get into, say, liberation theology. Now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also extremely familiar with, uh, say, the Philippine Revolution, uh, the New People's Army and so forth. And um, oh, gotcha. the priests uh, uh, of the Philippines, after Vatican II, the 1980s, uh, they were going out into co the community, organizing with the masses, uh, understanding their, uh, their experiences and, and uh, what their needs are. And a lot of those priests uh, and nuns uh, formed uh, like the, you know, like, many of the regional New People's Army, uh, they, they formed the armed revolution in many different situations. In Colombia, priests had a lot to do with uh, armed revolutions uh, that were formed. Uh, and so uh, liberation theology itself, the texts of liberation theology, uh, most of them, I, I, uh, maybe as me, uh, I find them pretty boring. Uh, I can't really get into it. And, and a lot of it has to do with Vatican II. I, I don't really know, as a matter of fact, whether liberation theology, as we understand it, as a practice, comes from the, the texts at all, or just from the amazing example of uh, priests uh, and uh, many people don't know, and nuns uh, who have taken the, this to heart and have taken Jesus to heart and have uh, done uh, revolutionary things to help the masses uh, right. fight uh, imperialism and, and colonialism. Or to translate it to a modern context, like less theory, more praxis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Maybe, maybe they also yeah. had the same, maybe some nuns in El Salvador are reading this stuff, they're like, oh, this shit is it's too, too boring. Let's, let's really just yeah, do it, like, put it into practice, you know? <laughs> yeah. All um, right, well, I think that's, a, I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up. Uh, do you, was there anything else that you wanted to mention or like you wanted to plug your, your show? Well, it, well, certainly I'd love it if uh, folks would uh, be listening to your pod, podcast and subscribing to your podcast uh, and also uh, Radio Kurdistan uh, to keep up with... Uh, what's going on with the Yazidi people and to keep up with me, uh, I'd uh, like to plug uh, the pod, uh, my podcast, Radio Kurdistan, uh, on pretty much major platforms. But it's great if you could uh, like it on Facebook because if you like it on Facebook, that, that's how I could keep up with the metrics. Uh, and um, uh, the one thing I'd like to say is that when you are in the capitalist world, uh, revolution... It sounds just like some idea. Like it, it seems like oh, there's no Soviet Union anymore. Uh, the Cuban Revolution is uh, is uh, contained, and and uh, China is also the heart of capitalism. So therefore, uh, capitalism runs the entire world, and revolution is just a concept, or it's just some 
some idea of some people, or it's about uh, uh, you know gorillas in the mountains who are starving and have no chance of seeing or whatever. But when you actually right. go into a revolution, like right now, the revolution I'm in is uh, they they have you know buildings, they have like hospitals with like a huge pharmacology of. Uh, of uh, drugs, and they have the ability to to do uh, you know blood tests, uh, laboratory tests that turn around your your lab test faster than my doctor in New York City can give me a lab test. Uh, and they they have uh, uh, you know uh, amazing uh, ingenuity. And they have a large army. They have um, uh, people who uh, who love. The revolution who are engaged in the revolution just regular people not students or whatever just like people who 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 shepherd goats for a living are part of this revolution right. and um there is tv there uh, people i didn't know this until i got here there is revolutionary television they uh, everyone has uh, there's something like four channels of television that's just about Apple, you know <laughs> Uh, and, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so uh, people really, uh, it's it's really meaningful. It's, it's really inspiring to see that there there are millions of people in just this revolution. There's millions of people who are part of this thing, uh, and right. uh, so that's what people should understand that uh, revolution is not a concept. A revolution never is a concept. Revolution is an action, and it's in the present, and it's uh, happening among humanity on the planet now, you know, uh, and that's what I want to leave people with.